Well, as we're gathered here this morning, um, Christmas obviously is many things, better and worse, many things to many people. But one thing Christmas surely is, is that it is uh, preeminently a story. It's a story of God so loving the world that he sent his one and only son. And that overarching story from Genesis to Revelation, it's a great story that God has been working out through history, and he continues to work it out uh, until Christ returns again. But it's had several sort of climactic points, and the birth of Jesus is one of those climaxes. Now, our world, our culture, loves stories. That, that's one thing that we can say certainly about our culture. I'm going to throw three numbers up here. And the first number, $286 billion. That is the estimated amount of money that we, as a global world, will have spent at the box offices in 2016. $38 billion. That is the estimated amount of money as the box offices wrap up this week that we will have spent in North America alone at the box office. And that's just one outlet, one way that we immerse ourselves into a story. And we've spent that much money in North America alone. The third number, $30 billion, that is the amount of money that the United Nations has estimated would be required to end world hunger for one year. We love our stories, but we are also desperate for our stories. And the amount that we spend, just to put it into perspective, we spend more on stories than we could possibly, if we just gathered together as as a humanity, to end world hunger for one year, to stop going to movies for one year. And that's just movies. That's not talking about Kindle and books and going to the library or whatever other uh, outlets, whatever ways we spend money to, to immerse ourselves into stories. So certainly we can say as our culture, as as humans, we love our stories. So why do we love stories? Simply, I offer two reasons, two powerful reasons, because they offer us meaning and escape. Just speaking about movies alone, isn't that why we love movies? Because these stories, they powerfully frame some of our lives. As we see these narratives, they give us uh, some sense of uh, another narrative to, to make sense of our lives. And when our lives are, are painful, perhaps painfully mundane and boring or, or painfully uh, messy, movies and stories, they become an escape for us. And so we love our stories. And not only love, but perhaps we desperately need them. Our culture certainly is familiar with painful stories, both personal and corporate. And I'm sure uh, all of us could share at least one uh, painful story from 2016 but also just as, as a society, as a whole world, we don't have to look far. We just go onto the internet, whatever news feed you follow, and there's another just terrible story going on in, in life, in this world. And so we certainly are familiar with painful stories. And so as we come here to God's Word today, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is, um, and I hope, uh, just studying this first chapter, it's like we need to do a series in Matthew someday. But here, Matthew just introducing the story of Jesus, God's great story that he has been writing from the beginning of time. And he climaxes in this birth, and Jesus, this, this, this uh, babe, this helpless baby, would grow into this young boy, to this young adult, to this adult who would become our sinless sacrifice, dying on the cross for our sake and our stead. 
As Joseph, or sorry, as Matthew introduces this story of the life, message, and work of Jesus, he's offering us a greater story to enter into, to, to find hope in. Today, in the verses that were read, the main character is Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. And, and I hope that by the end of the sermon that you, you'll see this bottom line and you'll take it home with you, that it'll, it'll enter your thoughts, it'll uh, just cling to your heart, and, and you'll be able to put it into action. And this is the bottom line, that the gospel beckons to all, to everyone here today, to the whole world. It has been beckoning for, through all history, and especially as Christ came to this earth. The gospel beckons to all. Enter the story of Jesus, the King. That's the story that all our souls are pining for. And so I want to ask three questions. Uh, first, what, what does Matthew mean to say to his original audience, to his original listeners and readers? Second, where do we see the gospel in these verses that we read today? Where do we see God's grace? And then third, so what? How is this supposed to change your life and my life from the inside out? So let's jump into the text. Verse 17, we see sort of the first big point, and it's Joseph's greater story. Verse 17, it caps off a genealogy, the first 16 verses, basically a family tree. And I spared, I want to spare Yoshi the oratory acrobatics of all these Hebrew names and so forth. But here is this uh, family tree. And if you do the math correctly, if you add up just the 14, 14, 14 that Matthew lists there, it doesn't give you the exact number of generations. But if you'll just trust me on this, there were 40 generations from Abraham to David to Joseph. 40. But what I want you to notice is in this long history that it is riddled with mistakes. It is riddled with, with moral failures. It is riddled with misfits. In the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus are all these, these sour points. And yet Matthew has no shame to include it. For example, Ahaz, just to pick on one person, he was an evil king. Actually, over half of the kings listed here were evil. And Ahaz stands out, and he uh, performed child sacrifice. He sacrificed his own son. He stripped the temple, the Lord, of all its gold and silver as he worshipped pagan gods and sold that gold and silver to uh, surrounding enemy countries. And unusual to uh, Greco-Roman patriarchal and Jewish taste, here, Matthew, if he was trying to be convincing, he shouldn't have done this, but he includes four women. And sadly, at the time, it was a culture, a time where women's testimony and, and women were uh, not as uh, valued and honored. And yet, he includes these four women. And these four women, all the more, their, their stories were soiled. Tamar was conniving, so much so that she connived revenge against her father-in-law because she wanted to secure her own child and seduced her father-in-law to sleep with her. This is crazy stuff. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth was a Moabite, meaning a Gentile, meaning not Jewish, meaning not part of the original blood people of God, the Jewish people. And yet she is in this line, a mother of the royal line that would eventually bring about Jesus, the Savior of the world. And the fourth woman here, not even mentioned by name, just listed as the wife of Uriah. And we all know that this is the infamous Bathsheba. 
And she was accessory to David in adultery and murder. And yet, she is the line that God chooses to bring about His amazing master plan of grace. And so Joseph, he finds himself now at this intersection of life and history as God is about to do, just divinely interrupt his life and, and work out his plan for the salvation of the entire, for entire humanity. Joseph finds himself beckoned to be part of this greater story. And unbeknownst to him, these 40 generations of God doing something in his family's story. Now, the question I want to leave you with is, why does Matthew make his audience blush, even find offense at Jesus' tainted genealogy? And just hold on to that question. We're going to come back to it. But why does he allow his audience to even blush at this? Next, in verses 18 to 23, we see Joseph stuck in a lot of in-betweens. I like to say that Joseph was stuck between many a hard place and, and many a rock. In verse 18, Matthew continues his narration and he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now. And what Matthew is declaring here is God is intersecting with time. God is doing something intentionally to enter time. And Joseph here is in this great divide. As Jesus and His birth is the great divider of history, He wants you and I to also think this is a critical time in, in history and God is doing something special here. In fact, if you are someone who, who regularly asks for the date or you, you, you use a calendar and you schedule, then unbeknownst to you, unwittingly, you are declaring Jesus Christ as Lord every time you say the date. Because in our human history, we've accepted, we've looked to Jesus as the dividing point, the great reference point for time. B.C. stands for before Christ, and A.D. stands for Anno Domino, which is the year of our Lord, and it's all referring to this person, Jesus. And so unbeknownst to, to many a people who've never stepped in the church, never grown up in Christianity, unwittingly, you're declaring Jesus as Lord, and it's because what Matthew is saying here, now, at this time, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so Matthew is declaring Jesus as this great signpost to look forward to this kingdom here, but not yet. In verse 19, Joseph is stuck in another in-between, between wanting a sense of justice and, and that being intention with a mercy that he wants to show. Where do we see this? Verse 19, it says, he describes what's going on. We know from Luke's account that an angel came to Mary already and explained to her God's plan, that she would conceive a child supernaturally without having uh, lain with a, a, another man. And having heard this and, and finding his betrothed pregnant, Matthew describes, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Do you see the tension there? There's part of him that this is wrong. A crime has been committed against me. I'm offended. How could the one that I love, that I gave uh, an, an endowment to, that I became engaged with, how could you 
do this to me? And of course, any normal man would have trouble listening to and accepting Mary's story as an explanation. And so justice in him is boiling and he wants to do what is right and declare what you've done is wrong, but, and here's the end, unwilling to put her to shame. And so he still, even though he's been grievously offended, there's this mercy, there's a streak of mercy in him that wants to love, that wants to not put her under the bus. And so he's trying to negotiate these two, justice and mercy. In verse 20, we find Joseph stuck in between his speculation and God's revelation. In verse 20, Matthew continues to to write out the story and he says, But as he, Joseph, considered these things. And the, the word for consider in the original language, it's a neat word. Word. It's, it's a mashup of two words. The, the prefix means literally in. And the second word, the main root, the verb, means to be raged. And so he's literally enraged, and much like our English word enraged. And so he's considering, he wasn't just thinking there, you know, just calmly, perhaps just with a cup of tea and just mulling things over. Well, you know, I wonder if her story could be true. No, he was, he was in angst. He was torn. He was in tumult. And so as he's wrestling with these things, that's his speculation, his own logic, his own reasoning, his own observations, his own experience, his own moral compass, his own science even, if you will. An external word, an external revelation comes to him. God sends his word to Joseph through the angel. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, and he begins to explain what God is doing. Don't fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God's divine revelation. Now I need to go on a tangent here, just a quick tangent, because our modern day 2016, 21st century sensibilities laughs at the virgin birth. But what I want to boldly, if I may, boldly argue is that if you're an atheist today, if you, don't, if you, if you laugh at this idea of a virgin birth, that you have to reckon with your own virgin birth in a sense. Here's what I mean. The virgin birth, it, it's predicated on the fact that basically just in principle, something came from nothing. Mary is saying, I'm impregnated, but it's not by any man. It was supernatural. The Holy Spirit put a seed there. So something had to come from nothing. Now, even my closest atheist friends who are very scientific, they'll agree this much with me. In their wrestling with trying to find the meaning of life and trying to understand where it all came from, as, as we go backwards, as we reverse the causes and effects, and, and in their mind, in their worldview, as they're trying to reverse evolution and go back to the very beginning, even my closest, closest intelligent, atheist, scientific friends, they'll agree with me that they can never know exactly, even as a scientist, where it all began. It's just all theories. 
this theory that there is this primordial soup and there's this you know, cosmic explosion and just at the right time, you know, everything came together to catapult uh, this process of evolution and so forth. But they'll admit no one was there. We'll never be able to go back to there and observe concretely exactly what happened. And so they agree with me that even they, for them to keep believing in their worldview, that it requires faith. And so ironically, even these apparently opposing worldviews both require the same thing. They require faith. That something ultimately came from nothing. And so in principle, the virgin birth is not too far off from what my atheist friends need to believe as well. All that to say, here is Joseph wrestling between his speculation, his trying to figure things out, and now God's Word comes to him, divinely revealed. Finally, we find Joseph stuck between his sin and God's judgment. We see this in verse 21. The angel continues to explain God's word to him. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is my salvation. If I try to throw myself into this story, into Joseph's shoes, at least for me, if I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to Joseph, this would have been the tipping point for me. We know that Joseph was a just man. He had a clear standard of right and wrong. And so this word, God sending His Son, because Joseph, you need forgiveness as well. And this would have been the tipping point that God is now, and and not only Joseph, but His people, all the scriptures that He held on to were looking forward to this salvation. Where is it going to come from? Who is it going to be? And this would have been the tipping point if I could throw myself into the story that I need forgiveness. That I'm stuck between my sin and God's impending judgment. So where is the gospel in the story? Where do we see God's grace? Do you remember Joseph and his greater story? And I asked you to remember this question. Why does Matthew make his audience blush? even find offense at Jesus' tainted genealogy. Why? Because God's greater story is a story of redemption. That's why Matthew has no qualms to include these soiled aspects of of Jesus' family tree. Our families, doesn't matter whether you're, you're Asian or you're Caucasian or you're you're African, whatever continent you're from, we, no one likes to just completely air out their dirty laundry and all their family skeletons. No one. But here, Matthew, as he's introducing this gospel of Jesus right from the beginning, he makes this loud and clear that God is writing a redemptive story. Even all the dark spots, the shameful spots, the, 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 
the criminal spots of this story, God is doing something to bring something beautiful and redemptive, to just lavish His grace. Do you remember that Joseph was stuck between his justice and his mercy? And we are no different from Joseph from 2,000 years ago to 2016. We're no different. When we see someone less than us, could be someone who just cut you off this morning, could be someone at work, could be someone in your family, could be your neighbor, could be anyone, but we, there's always someone where judgment boils up, it bubbles to the surface, and we feel judgmental. And we want to be just as well. We want to see justice come to those less than us. But if God is God, meaning He is perfectly just, then only absolute moral perfection can stand before Him. Which means even you, even though you're better than how many thousand or millions of people on this earth, even though you might be, relatively speaking, morally better than them, you will fail under God's perfect justice. So then the tables turn, and now we begin to cry out for God's perfect mercy. Because if God is a perfect God, then He should be merciful to all, including me. But then that means He needs to be merciful to those less than you. Meaning He needs to be merciful to everyone. But then there's something in our hearts that says, I don't want that. I don't like that. That's not fair. Why does someone worse than me get the mercy that I think they don't deserve. And so enter Jesus. This is where we begin to see the gospel here. God is sending His Son where this conundrum, how can God be simultaneously perfectly just and perfectly merciful? And the answer is in Jesus alone. Because this little babe, this helpless little babe would grow up and he'd be sinless. He'd grow into a full-grown adult and be sinless. And God would pour out all the, the punishment for the sins of the world, humanity, all time on his son and satisfy his perfect justice. But because his justice was perfectly satisfied, now through this Jesus, he would begin to make available to all who would trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, His perfect mercy. Do you also recall Joseph being stuck between his sin and God's judgment? Why does he name, why does he give specific instruction for this baby to be named Jesus? Because Jesus is the one true bridge. The one true bridge bridge of safety when we feel stuck between our sin and God's judgment. This Jesus whose name means Yahweh saves. I'm going to throw up a picture of here uh, of just, I don't know how many faces are here, but just many amazing people in history. People who have actualized their human potential. Here you have great military tacticians. You have uh, people who are funny, people who are, uh, just wrote beautiful books and poetry, people who led countries well, people who were very holy and religious. And so all these people that came through uh, this, this life and, and passed through history. But just consider this thought. If, if 
God thought that we needed more laughter, if that was the, the solution to all our life's questions, then he would have sent some great comedian as his son. If God thought we just needed more health, then he would have sent a great doctor who would heal all our diseases. Jesus, yes, as, as he came and he inaugurated the kingdom, he performed miracles to heal, but he didn't heal the whole world. And, but if God thought our health was the most important thing, he would have sent someone to just ingenious, to be able to heal all the world's diseases. If God thought we needed more money, then He would have sent some brilliant financier. If God thought we just needed more knowledge, then He would have sent the founder of Wikipedia many years ago and said, this is my son. But no, God knows that our deepest need is reconciliation with Him, meaning the forgiveness of our sins. And therefore, He sent Jesus. So what? How is this supposed to change our lives as we receive this message of grace and, and let it rewire our thinking as it as it challenges the affections of our hearts, what we cling to in this life, what we consider beautiful and lovely and and worth chasing. And as that translates to action, so what? Joseph actually is a beautiful example of living by faith, responding with faith to this grace. And so I want to leave you with four practical actions from Joseph's example. And so, first, let the Gospel story God's greater story, redeem your story. I don't assume anything, and there could be people here today who have a story even more uh, soiled than what we saw in Jesus' genealogy. I don't think anyone here has ever literally sacrificed their child. Perhaps we've sacrificed our children on the altar of of work and, and success and ambition. Perhaps some of us have have had broken marriages and we have committed adultery. Certainly, if we've lusted after something with our eyes, as Jesus says, we've committed adultery. And so we're no different from Bathsheba and David. And we could go on and on. Perhaps we're we're not worse or we are worse than Jesus' family here. But the point is, no matter your past, God is offering to redeem your story. That's the Christmas joyous message. He's extending His grace to you and me. Enter the greater story of Jesus the King. And as you trust yourself to Him, day by day, year after year, season after season, as you look back on the... When you reach the end of your life and you'll look back and you trusted Christ all along the way, you will see that He worked redemption. And when we enter into eternity, He will bring it to a full exclamatory conclusion. And you will see in all glory the good that He meant for you as you trusted Him. Second, Listen. Listen for the alarm clocks in life. What do I mean by that? Verse 24, it says that Joseph woke up from his sleep. 
And so here, this was a literal waking up, but here I think there's something, an application for us, something metaphor. That in all our lives, that, that God is letting the alarms go off. Maybe a circumstance. Maybe even this message today. Maybe someone in your life, something on the way, something. God is saying, wake up. Wake up to my grace. And when you trust Christ and He fills you with His Spirit, and you follow Him day by day as you navigate this relationship, as you are day by day trying to grow into this relationship with Christ and the indwelling Spirit, you'll find yourself waking up from a stupor, waking up from a a slumber, waking up perhaps even from a nightmare to a bright dawn of a new day in His grace. Third, demonstrate your faith through obedience. The proof is in the pudding. If you declare yourself a Christ follower, and what we see in Joseph beautifully here, we see it in verse 24. Let's look to the text. After he woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He surrendered his own speculation. And he embraced God's revelation. And he demonstrated that faith in God's revelation through obedience. It's what we call being a disciple of Christ, where Jesus Christ becomes your everything, your all in all. Fourth, like Joseph, call his name Jesus. Every day, as you look at the calendar, as you write down the date, as you ask or tell someone who's asking for the date what the date is, you're unwittingly declaring Jesus is Lord. But are you actually declaring Jesus for who he is? Joseph here obeyed, and he declared this baby that would come, and for you and me, this person in history that walked the earth several thousand, a couple thousand years ago, what are we going to call him? Are we going to acknowledge him for who he says he is? The Savior of the world who saves his people from their sins. Started off the, the sermon just with a reference to movies and uh, had a little time this week to uh, find and see Jason Bourne um, based on uh, Robert Ludlum's uh, spy novels and and in this uh, fourth uh, serving of, of, of this story, the spy, um, he's on this perennial search for his identity. And his pursuer at this climactic moment just yelling at him, you will never be at peace right? until you admit who you are. And I know it's pop culture and it's just from some you know, trivial action film, but those words are prophetic. They are. And in, not in some sense. Those are exactly the words that the gospel is beckoning to you and me, that, that is shouting out to you and me. You will never be at peace in your life until you are ready to admit who Christ is and because of Christ, who you are. As you find yourself stuck in your own in-betweens, every morning when you wake up and you look in the mirror and you're stuck between who you know you really are, your brokenness and and who you want to be. 
as you're in between your own self and this world, this broken world, the, the, the job you're going to go to, the, the headlines that we see, and you're trying to navigate just reconciliation between yourself and this, this absurd world. And ultimately, as you stand in between times, as you live life here and now on earth, but you're standing in this great divide as you see eternity coming, Jesus alone is the safe bridge. He is the great quiet resting place of his people. And so the hymn reflects, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation and also the church's Hope of all the earth you are. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. The gospel is beckoning to all. Enter the great, great, greater, greatest story of Jesus the King. Let's pray.